0: The following audio is from our sermon series titled The Whole Story Genesis to Revelation. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. Y'all, I don't know if you noticed this, but like this for me was really, uh, made me aware of where we're at in this whole story series because we're all the way back here. Look at that. We are all the way back here in my Bible as we have rolled through the whole story this year uh, as a church together. My name is Scott and I'm one of the pastors here on a diverse pastoral team. And I don't know about y'all, but I absolutely love Advent. Advent. Y'all, like, I'm already a little bit giddy this morning. Okay, uh, I love the anticipation in Advent. I love the expectation of the Advent season. Uh, and most of the time, when we think of Advent, I think we we often think of it as leading up to Christmas, right? And the first coming of Jesus. This is why, in our Advent moments uh, that we did last week, we're going to do another one this week. Uh, we uh, turn to. Isaiah chapter 9, and we read about the long-expected, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, and everlasting father, right? Before Jesus was ever born, that's who he was prophesied to be. But one of the main reasons that we still celebrate Advent today is because at our point in salvation history, we also live in a moment of anticipation and expectation for the second coming of Jesus, which happens to be just what we're going to talk about this week and next week as we open up the book of Revelation together. I don't know about y'all, but uh, may, for many of us, I think the thought of jumping into Revelation probably induces a strong reaction uh, in some of our hearts, right? Some of you are probably wondering if I'm that dude that is so caught up in end times like theology and eschatology that I am just up here giddy this morning because I want to tell you what I think about the rapture. I'm just, I'm not that dude, all right? Like, I'm here to say this morning, I am definitely not that dude. So if that's your fear, uh, hopefully I can uh, um, let you loose of that one this morning. I mean, there aren't too many people out there, uh, hopefully, um, that, that have that fear. But uh, if you knew me, at least. But also, I think sometimes you just get caught up in, man, this, this book is confusing. I'm not, I'm not sure what to think about it. And so, um, you know, like that can be a thing that we step into too when we're thinking about um, apocalyptic literature. Uh, I'm actually of the opinion uh, that there's far too much out there about the book of Revelation that has nothing to do with the main theme of this book but instead it gets caught up in the minute details, right? Uh, did you know that there's like a book series out there, uh, you know, that actually uh, got put into film, the first one at least. It had Nick Cage. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to like name names. I don't want to crush anybody, right? But like uh, and, and this, this book series, uh, if you were to get so caught up in it and you were to get caught up in the minutia and all the details of what's going on in the book of Revelation, uh, it's led me to believe that my house would be your first step if you were, to, you were wondering if the rapture happened, because I have a daughter that has a pacemaker. My guess is you don't know a whole lot of people with a pacemaker. And so if Jesus was to come back and he was to rapture everybody up, you know, the first place that you would go looking, if you wanted to know, and if you were really caught up in this stuff, would be my daughter Madeline's bunk bed. Because if you found her pacemaker there, but no Madeline, you'd be like, wow, it really happened. I was left behind, y'all. Okay, that is not what we're doing. Other than a couple of jokes this morning, okay, like that, we are not getting into the minutia and the details of Revelation. To be clear, we're not going to be talking about the the symbols and the bowls and the lampstands, but we are definitely going to be talking about the second coming of Jesus for one big reason, and that's this. The second coming of Jesus is the most talked about doctrine in the Bible, God, you you know this? Like, this this, like blew me away when I did some research. The Bible talks about the first coming of Christ only 129 times. And we celebrate that. We start celebrating Christmas for like more than a month before it ever happens, right? Some of y'all don't even wait till after Thanksgiving. You know who you are. But did you know that the Bible talks about the second coming of Jesus 329 times? Almost three times as much as it talks about the first coming of Jesus. For every one prophecy in the Bible concerning Christ's first advent, there are eight that talk about the second advent. Let that sink in for a second. Listen, almost every time that I read through Revelation in my Bible reading plan, I get a little bit confused. All right, I get confused about what what all these symbols point to. But the big picture, I want to remind us, the big picture of Revelation is crystal clear for each and every one of us to understand. And that's what we're going to focus on for the next couple of weeks. With that in mind, does anyone here know what the word revelation means? Anybody? I learned, uh, I learned this week the details. Let's look at verse 1, okay? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. That word right there in chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation Literally means the unveiling. I don't know about y'all, but two things come to mind when I think about the unveiling. Uh, The first is a great big curtain, okay? and the second it, for me it's Bob Barker for you it might be Drew Carey okay depending on how old you are okay uh, but it's like Bob Barker saying hey could you show us what's be kind curtain number 3 right like and then all of a sudden like there's this brand new car right like and you're just waiting for them to unveil what's going on behind this great curtain on the price is right because you you know you you were tracking with them and and they made their little you know like offer what they think it's going to be and you really want them to get that car behind curtain number three. You see, when it comes to Revelation, we know there's not a car behind curtain number three, but there is going to be this curtain pulled back and this unveiling. So the question is, when it comes to Revelation, what is being unveiled? Is it Jesus himself who's being unveiled or is Jesus Christ actually the one doing the unveiling about the things that will soon take place? And you know, if you if you know me very long, the answer is actually both. Okay, like don't get caught up in this. Uh, the answer is both. The way it's written in the Greek is actually ambiguous, and I think that's deliberately so. And that's because it's both a revelation of Jesus to the church, and also a revelation from Jesus about the things that must soon take place. And this church is the main thing that we need to keep in our minds as we open the book of revelation together this book of the bible is not to help us figure out specific timelines of events or help us identify various figures okay to be crystal clear the point is not to help us figure out which beast in this book is actually Vladimir Putin okay that is not what this book is about I told you there'd be a couple of jokes all right The point is to pull back the curtain of history so that we can see the powers at work behind the politics on earth. As Bible readers, we have to stand firm and not get caught up in the dragons and the beasts, thinking about it like it's a work of fantasy, but instead we need to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the unveiling of Jesus to the church and an unveiling from Jesus about things that will take place. So this morning, I think God wants each one of us to hear, because John fully intended for the seven churches to understand Revelation, okay? He didn't write it in apocalyptic literature, hoping to confuse people for the rest of time, okay? He fully intended for the seven churches to understand Revelation. Because of that, we must grasp the main message of the unveiling. My sermon title for this morning is uh, The Curtain, Pulling Back the Curtain. This morning, we're going to talk about two curtains, okay? The first one we're going to talk about uh, behind curtain number one is uh, the curtain being pulled back on the world, and behind curtain number two this morning is going to be Jesus, and he's going to be unveiled, or we're going to, he's going to reveal more to us about himself, because John fully intended, believe that, church, help my unbelief, right? Uh, the full, the, God, John fully intended uh, for the seven churches to understand Revelation. We must grasp the main message of the unveiling. Will you all pray with me? God, uh, I, I feel this oftentimes uh, more strongly in different books of the Bible. I'll just admit that. Like Mike said, we can be uh, fully authentic this morning. Revelation is a hard one for me at times. Uh, this week, you turned on all the lights for me. I feel like, and helped me to see uh, some of the big main things here. And so I pray, God, that you would do that for all of us, that we would not be intimidated by this apocalyptic literature. Rather, in it, we would see it uh, as another one of the books of the Bible, that if we understand the main things that you're saying to us, uh, that can help us to hear from you. Help us to hear from you through uh, the text this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, church, before we jump into Revelation, I just want you to think about the day and age that this letter was written from John on the island of Patmos as he's in exile to these people in the seven churches. At this point, the church is not doing particularly well. Let me outline this for you. All of the apostles have been martyred except for John and he's been exiled on this island by himself. Christians are being hunted down like deer in early December in Iowa, okay? Partly because they were being blamed for uh, wrongly for burning Rome and and for other problems that are happening in the empire. Uh, Roman and Jewish leaders have made it illegal almost everywhere to even be a Christian at this point in time. The gospel is still advancing, but it definitely does not feel like the church is winning. And so... Jesus appears to John the Apostle in his prison cell and he gives him this revelation of how God sees the world and a forecast of what he plans to do in the world. Harvard City, I think we need this unveiling just as much as the church did in its day and age. And that's why we're stepping into this this morning because we need the curtain pulled back for us because we have some facade in, in the way that we see the world and also we don't clearly see Jesus uh, the way that he wants us to. So let's pull back these curtains together this morning. Uh, behind curtain number one, I'll remind you, the curtain is pulled back to reveal the world. In order to see uh, the world, we're going to have to look at this representative talked about in Revelation chapter 17. That's where we're going to start. Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, come. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and in the the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs. Of Jesus. Y'all it would be so easy for us in this text to get caught up with beasts and the number of heads they had and all of these things but this woman if we just come down to the simple truths of it this woman represents the enemies of God. All those who do not belong to Jesus. I want us to notice that in verse 2 Her customers are kings from every kingdom, and their inhabitants are all over the earth. This is not just a one people here or there. This is an all of earth, every kind of place kind of thing. One key thing to notice as this first curtain is pulled back is that when the world is fully veiled, there are only two kingdoms. There's her kingdom, and there's Jesus' kingdom. And everyone on earth belongs to either one or the other. That is the simple truth. So there's a number of things that I want us uh, to see about this woman. But man, we're just going to hit six of them for time's sake this morning. The first is she is a prostitute. Okay. Notice this is not because she's all about sex. It's because sin at its core is spiritual adultery. If you need this unfolded for you and you need to unpack it in greater uh, amount, read the book of Hosea sometime, okay? Look at what that prophet had to go through his, I can't tell you that story right now, we don't have time for it, but go read the book of Hosea, or if you need it in like today's form, okay, uh, I love me some Flannery, or not Flannery O'Connor, what's her name, Uh, Francine Rivers, okay, and go read uh, Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers, or uh, watch that new movie actually, that Francine Rivers joint, y'all know that I don't really dig uh, Christian like uh, movies all that much sometimes, but that new one, Francine Rivers did well, and they did well with that one, okay. It actually depicts well, I think, what we're talking about here with this idea of spiritual adultery. You see, we were created to love and worship God, to serve him above all else, to find our fulfillment and our security, our satisfaction, and our greatest delight in God alone. And the primary sin of the human race was, the Apostle Paul says, to put the things of this world in the place that God was supposed to be. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. The name written on this woman's forehead, did you notice, is Babylon. Babylon's the name of the city with a long history in the Bible, symbolizing man's rebellion against God. We first encountered Babylon back in Genesis 11, where it was called Babel. Maybe you remember that part of the story. Justin Dean came and preached uh, that morning as he shared God's word with us. There at Babel, the human race uh, united to build a tower in rebellion of God. The human race uh, like attempted to demonstrate their glory, their power, and their potential. You see, the essence of the spirit of Babylon is this. I will do what I want to do rather than what God wants me to do. I will be the point. I will be at the center. I will be on the throne in my own life. So the first thing I want you to notice as the curtain starts to be pulled back, as curtain number one is pulling, being pulled back and the world is being unveiled to us, is that like it's filled with spiritual adultery. If you are not in the kingdom of Jesus, then you are cheating on Jesus. You're not living the way that God created us to live. Here's the second one. Not only is she a prostitute, but she's very attractive. She might not seem that attractive to you because as you think about it, you're like, well, the world doesn't usually portray attractive women riding on beasts with 10 heads and like seven horns and whatever's going on there, okay? But think about the language used here uh, and how it's trying to portray her as incredibly attractive. In verse four, she's arrayed in purple and scarlet. Purple is like uh, the color of royalty, right? Uh, Adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, In verse 6, it says that John himself is awestruck by her. In verse 2, we see that living with her is intoxicating for a while. She promises so much. But let me remind you, folks, that she fulfills much less. Listen, sin is enjoyable for a season. If anyone tells you any different, they are lying to you. But the kicker is, it's only fun for a season, It just ends in a place that you don't want to be. Scripture says all sin leads to death. So at first we need to see that this this woman is a prostitute. We need to see, though, that she's not just uh, an average everyday one. She's very attractive. She's seducing many people. And she's not just doing it in an irreligious manner. But the third thing I want you to notice is that like she's actually doing it in a religious manner, too. It's not just people in the church or outside of the church that are being caught up in this seductive nature. Uh, it's, it's people in both places because she's tempting us with religion and irreligion. See the religion in her. One of, her woman, one of this woman's companions is a false prophet, this text says. False religion engages in a lot of activity for God, but without putting God back in the central place, he belongs in our hearts. I want to give two examples of this because I think this is actually more important for us to see. First, every false religion in the world teaches you that you can save yourself. Teaches you that if you are good enough, if you work hard enough, if you give enough money, if you pray enough, that you will be saved. And the list that each religion provides is a little bit different, right? Like they're different lists, but in the end, they all provide a list that if you do this, you could be saved. The basic message is essentially the same. Work hard enough and you can earn the entire the eternal outcome that you desire. You know what that does? That makes man his own savior. Which means we will get the glory for our salvation and we are in a negotiating position with God where we can say, "God, I did this, so you owe me that." Church, that's not the gospel. The gospel teaches something incredibly other than this. We could do nothing to save ourselves, so God had to do it all for us. All we can do is receive it. That means that he gets the glory for it. It also means that we owe him everything. Our love and our gratefulness for his salvation makes us willing to give him everything. This is the kind of religious seduction this woman is about. There's a second example of her religion, the message that you can, get your God, uh, you can get God back in your life without ever surrendering yourself fully to God. I think this message is portrayed uh, in, in pop culture uh, with a really good bumper sticker that people get caught up in. It says, God is my co-pilot. Y'all think about that for a little bit. If God is your co-pilot, somebody's sitting in the wrong seat because this is not what the gospel tells us. Like we don't just sit next to God and need a little bit of guidance for him to tell us which turn to take along our way. When we come to God, we come to him saying, hey, this is your car. I tried to steal it and we hand the keys back to him. We get in the back seat and we say, all right, doc, where are we headed? This is what it looks like to live with God. But this woman has seduced us into thinking that religion can save us or that we can get God back into our lives without actually surrendering to him. And she hasn't just seduced all those people out there, but I want you to see this. She's actually seduced many of God's people family, some of us need to hear this because uh, we, we get swept up into her, into, her, into her enchantments and we need to know what's going on. I think it's more than just possible that God's people get swept up in her enchantment, enchantments. I would say it's happening to most of us. But some of us seem to think that just because we grew up in a Christian family or just because we're raising our kids in a Christian manner, that they will be bulletproof when it comes to this lady's temptations. Studies, however, show that our lifestyles as professing Christians look just like those of the world around us. We're just as materialistic, just as sexually immoral, and just as self-centered as the world. They say our spending patterns are strikingly similar to the world around us. One study says that only 6% of Bible-believing American Christians tithe. Another study says that in parenting, the priorities of Christian parents for their kids look virtually identical to non-Christian parents. We cart our kids all over town in the same way that non-Christian parents do, teaching our kids to be good at the things that the world says, like sports and entertainment, and the effects are evident. 60 to 80% of our kids will leave Christianity behind by the time they've hit 18 years old. This is what statistics say. You see, when we live with the values of this woman, we bring upon ourselves plagues. We rob ourselves of God's blessings, and we rob ourselves of spiritual power. One Christian leader said it like this, the greatest challenge facing Bible-believing American Christians is not persecution from the world, it's seduction of the world. Y'all, this lady, she's a prostitute who's incredibly attractive, she's trying to steer us and tempt us, not just with irreligion, but also in religious ways. She's not gotten to people just that are outside of Christ, but she's actually seduced many of God's people. But here's the point blank that like, is easy to see in the text, but you've got to say it. This woman hates Jesus. It's one of the most obvious things about the woman, but it's a thing that I think we most often overlook about the world that we live in. In verse 9, the beast is described as having seven heads, which John says symbolizes seven mountains and seven kings. And scholars say this could refer to either seven Roman emperors or or, or seven empires that have come or are to come in history before the coming of Christ, okay? Don't get caught up in all that. The thing is, these seven kings, the text says, are drunk with the blood of God's people because this woman has always hated Jesus and she has always, always hated Jesus' people. Church, we need to get our minds around this. In every generation, true followers of Jesus have been hated by the world. Some of the empires that have hated uh, her have been religious empires and they've persecuted followers of Jesus for, for, for preaching that salvation is a free gift of God's grace and not something you can ever earn by religious zeal. And they have hated the followers of Jesus for saying that religion's not about earthly power and control, but it's about following Jesus, emptying ourselves, and becoming a servant of all. On the other hand, non-religious empires, much like the one we live in here in our city, they persecute people. They could persecute the people of God for saying that Jesus is in charge and that he makes the rules about morality. I wonder why is this so difficult for us to grasp? You see, those of us who love the prostitute, those who want to be their own lords and saviors, have always hated those who say Jesus is the only Lord and can be our only savior. This has been true throughout history, and it's true in our city today. Christians don't get a lot of love in the mainstream media, do we? But they sure do get a lot of hate mail. If you're a student, pastor, president at the University of Iowa, you've probably experienced this, right? Lovers under the influence of this prostitute will make fun of you in classrooms and fraternities. They misrepresent your intelligence. They misrepresent your convictions. And they misrepresent your motives. But here's the deal. When we see this hate, when we experience this hate, Jesus says, hey, they did the same thing to me. And I don't want you to be surprised or discouraged by that. Because here's the goal, okay? The, the good news, all of that's kind of like, oof, that's hard to see sometimes. But the good news in all of this, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, and seeing this woman, is that in the end, she loses. In the end, she loses. Look at verses 6 to 8 in Revelation chapter 18. It says, pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds, mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Church, there are two rival kingdoms and two rival kings, or rather a king on one side and a queen on the other. Babylon or Jerusalem, you or Jesus, and only one is going to be left standing, and I tell you what, it is going to be Jesus. Those who stand with Jesus in life will stand eternally with him in heaven. And those who stand against him in life will die eternally in the second death. We're going to talk about that more next week. But here's the deal. When the curtain is pulled back to reveal the world, that is what we are going to find. So let's turn now to Revelation chapter 1 so that we can see what this book unveils for us about Jesus. So here's the deal. Now we're going to pull back curtain number 2. And this curtain is going to reveal to us more about Jesus. Church, before I read this next text, I think it's important for us to put on the anticipation and expectation of Advent. You see, during Advent we talk about the first coming of Jesus and how many years before he was born in Bethlehem it was said that he would be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, and everlasting father. I loved the year in Advent when we just unpacked each one of those titles and we talked about what we're actually anticipating and expecting in Jesus that those titles unfold for us. Think about this, Advent's a season of waiting, expectation, and longing, and each one of these titles comes with its own specific expectations and anticipations. The expectation for the long-expected wonderful counselor is for wisdom, right? As the wonderful counselor, Jesus comes to rescue fools from themselves. The expectation that comes from the title Mighty God is the expectation of power and strength, that when God unleashed his might through Jesus... To defeat sin and death for all of eternity, he also empowered us to desire and do what we would not be able to do without his son working in and through us. That's power. That's strength. And that's just the first two weeks of Advent. So I want to remind us, because there's this description of Jesus here in Revelation chapter one that I believe should shape our anticipation and expectation of the second coming of Jesus. I said this last week, but many times the way that Jesus is pictured for us is soft, sad, and often unemployed, all right? First off, that's not true, but secondly, it doesn't inspire much in us. So listen to how different this description of Jesus is as he's unveiled in Revelation chapter 1. We'll start in verse 10. John writes this, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. That's going to be the hardest part of your missional family tonight is somebody reading that joint, all right? Those are just the seven cities and the seven churches, and they're in the order. When he sent the letter from Patmos, it would hit each one of them in order along the path, okay? Here we go. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, like snow. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Church, there is a patient endurance that is required of us who live between the first coming of Christ and the second one. I believe that this description of Jesus is here to empower us to patiently endure between the first advent and the second advent. I believe that this description of Jesus is is awe-inspiring, that this description of Jesus is authoritative, that this description of Jesus reminds us that victory is coming because without being in awe of Jesus, without his authoritative voice, without seeing Jesus as victor, we will not have what it takes to patiently endure between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus in the world that we live in. We need to see Jesus with crystal clear clarity because I think in doing that, it shapes our anticipation and our expectation of what here, life here is going to be like as we patiently endure. City, I'm convinced that what we need most as we patiently endure between the first advent and the second advent is to fall to the ground in awe of Jesus the way John did. We need for our hearts to be captivated and in awe of Jesus Christ. So consider with me, what we know in the New Testament about John's relationship with Jesus. Because I think it's important, before we see John drop to the floor as if dead before Jesus, this description that we just read, we need to understand what his relationship was like with him in the first place. If you were to take John's word for it, okay, if you were to go to John's gospel and you were to take John's word for it about their relationship, he says that he is the disciple that Jesus loved, okay, This dude had a lot of confidence about his relationship with Jesus. That's how he talked about it. They're pretty tight, all right? He's like, yeah, I'm the disciple Jesus loved, you know? But if you were to look in the rest of the Gospels, okay, and you were to see what anybody else's firsthand eyewitness account said about John's relationship with Jesus, you would find that at least, very least, maybe he's not the one, okay, that Jesus loved, but at least he's a part of the big three. You know what I mean? Because John is one of the three that's always there in these big moments in Jesus' life when the transfiguration happens, and in the end, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is one of the three right there with Jesus. They are tight. This guy, who's probably had a lot of experiences in life with Jesus, who feels pretty comfortable with Jesus, drops to the floor dead upon encountering the risen Jesus in this way in Revelation. He didn't slap hands with Jesus and give him a bro hug, all right? He didn't like run after Jesus. He's like, I haven't seen you in 60 years. Come in tight. John fell to the ground in reverence, awe, and fear of God the way that people do when they encounter the triune God. Church, I think so many of us have gotten too caught up in friendliness with Jesus that we don't see him with enough awe in our lives. Church, I believe that seeing Jesus in this way is paramount for us as we patiently endure. So try not to get caught up in the details of this description, but I want us to be swept away by how awe-inspiring, authoritative, and assuring of victory this description of Jesus is. Okay, so take a deep breath because I'm going to go in and I'm going to hit each one of these things and I want us to be blown away by this. Jesus is described as like a son of man, y'all. The son of man is this title that Jesus used for himself most often, but it has its roots in the book of Daniel. This title reminds us of Jesus' divine glory and eternal dominion. That means he's going to rule forever. Even if it doesn't feel like things are going the way that he intended in your life right now, we can rest assured that Jesus will put all things to rights and that he is going to rule forever. Jesus is described here as wearing a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. This maybe could remind us how he is the great high priest, how he's the only one who could make a sacrifice to deal with our sin problem once and for all. That reminds us that no matter what we have done, that there is one. His name is Jesus, and he has done everything necessary for us to be forgiven. Y'all, Jesus' hair here is said to be white like wool and like snow, And his white hair should show us his infinite divine wisdom to encourage us that we are never going to find ourselves in a spot. We are never going to be so far back in a corner. We are never going to find ourselves in a situation in which God will not know what is best for us. He is infinitely wise. Jesus' eyes are said to be like a flame of fire, which should remind us that Jesus came And his eyes can see right through every facade that we try and put up or that others put up in order to make it so that he doesn't see us for who we are. He sees right through every one of our smoke screens. He knows our hearts. He holds them in his hand like a water course and directs them wherever he pleases. Church, his feet were like refined, burnished bronze. In other words, Jesus is going to crush any opponent that comes his way. He is the victor. Satan will not prevail. In the end, no one will be able to stand against Jesus. His voice is like the roar of many waters. When Jesus speaks, he speaks with force and authority. His voice is to be listened to and obeyed above all other voices. We don't need one more podcast from one more expert to tell us what's up in our lives. We need God speaking through his word. Church, Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand. These seven stars represent all the seven churches, which in the midst of all the turmoil they lived in in their age, Jesus holds them in his hands. Be encouraged that no matter what turmoil you find yourself in the midst of, no matter what's swirling around in your life right now, Jesus holds you in his right hand, this strong hand of protection and empowering. It says, from Jesus' mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. It reminds us of the imagery in Hebrews chapter 4 that, uh, the, that, that it's like sharp as a double-edged sword to pierce through bone and marrow, soul and spirit. We need to be reminded that Jesus searches our hearts and the hearts of people around us. Jesus judges even the rebels. And it says Jesus' face is like the, the, the sun shining in full strength. Jesus is the true light of the world and there will be a day when the sun in the sky will not be necessary because his radiance will be more than enough which should remind us that we, 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 we are, it's pointless for us to hide from Jesus. It's all out there. He can see it. We might as well walk in the light. Again, I don't say all of this to get caught caught up in the symbolism. Rather, I point to this description of Jesus because I believe as we look to Jesus that we need to be captivated by him and in awe of him, which if we're honest, doesn't happen as much as we would like because we are so easily distracted by the things of this world. We get way more caught up in how many heads that, that beast had, that that lady's riding up, than we do in the risen Jesus. We need to remember that Jesus is better. Just like the song says, in all our sorrows, Jesus is better. In every victory, Jesus is better. Than any comforts, Jesus is better. More than all riches, Jesus is better. God, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus is better, church family what we need in the midst of our struggles the thing we need when marriage is not going well what we need when things at work feel like they're falling apart it's not a better communication strategy it's not 10 tips for a successful life what we need is to get our eyes off ourselves just like mike did yesterday and fix them on jesus look at how this text wrapped up in one chapter one verses 17 and 18 He says, when I saw him, when John got his eyes fixed on Jesus, he says, I fell at his feet as though dead, but Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Before we even think about what Jesus said, I want you to think this powerful, authoritative uh, victor. He cares about you enough to put his hand on your shoulder and remind you who he is and how he feels about you. You see, when John fell down in awe, Jesus put his powerful right hand on John's shoulder and he said something like, I'm the first and the last. I was there when it started and I'm going to be the last one standing. And in the meantime, I'm guiding it all to my perfect appointed ends. John, not only am I incredibly powerful, but I died for you so that you would never have to face death. I used my power to save you and now I'm using that same power to perfect my purposes in you. John, I have the keys to all that could ever threaten you. And if this is true, then John, what are you afraid of? Do you think I can't control cancer? Do you think I can't protect your children? Do you think I don't know your marriage uh, has seen better days? Jesus is saying, look at me. Church, Jesus says, look at me. Jesus says, look at me, look at my power, look at my control, but don't miss, look at my love. He says, why do you doubt? That powerful right hand that's sitting on John's shoulder, which, by the way, calms storms and creates matter from nothing. It's the same hand that is a nail scarred hand because Jesus died for John's sin." That powerful right hand sitting on John's shoulder is the same right hand that has protected and empowered Jesus and the church for the past 2,000 years. And if you're in Christ this morning, I want you right now to feel that powerful right hand is nail scarred for your sin too. And it will protect you until the day that you go to be with Jesus or until the day that Jesus returns for the second time. So as we wrap up, I just want to pose three questions for us as we wrap up. First one is this. Do you personally need to see Jesus like this this morning? Have you been distracted by the things of this world? Do you spend most of your days thinking about this or that or the thing that you really want? Or do you spend it living in awe of Jesus and trying to live for his glory. Second, second question I have for you This is this, do you dare stand against him? One day we will all see him, his face shining with the brightness of the sun at full strength. And on that day, those who sided with the prostitute, Revelation 6 says they're gonna call on the mountains to cover them from that face. Do we stare, dare stand against him? The third question is this. Do you see what this shows us about what we should be about and about our purpose? See, if this is what Jesus is about on earth, if he's got these seven stars in his hand, his right, his right hand, his powerful right hand, then shouldn't it be what we're about too? The stars in his hand reveal to us his agenda. His agenda is building the church. I wonder, shouldn't we be involved too? The church has one commission, y'all. One commission, spreading the gospel. Shouldn't we be giving our lives to that? There are still so many people who have not heard. Our city I heard it said like this. The point of revelation is not to give us details for idle speculation about the second coming of Christ. The point of revelation is to motivate us to go and tell people about the first coming of Christ before that second advent happens. You see, the first time he came as a savior, but the second time he's going to come as a judge. Jesus is coming back soon, and when he does, my prayer for our church is that he finds people filled with anticipation and expectation, but also that he would find so many more people here because we could not help but take him up on being a part of that great commission. Amen? Amen. Well, my other privilege this morning, besides bringing the word to you, is that after pulling back that curtain, after having the world and Jesus unveiled for us uh, through scripture, it's to take us into this grace that God has offered to us uh, called the sacrament of communion, to draw us near to him. Because uh, the beautiful thing about communion, the beautiful thing this reminds us is that there used to be a curtain, there used to be a veil that separated us from stepping into the holy of holies in God's, uh, in God's presence. That's how it used to be in the temple. But in Jesus, that was torn in two, that veil stands no longer, and we can enter into the presence because of the spilled blood of Jesus and the sacrificed body of Jesus. So this morning, through our celebration of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the death of Christ. These elements, okay? These elements, which represent the body and the blood of Jesus, are a visible sermon to us. They're the gospel in tangible form. They proclaim to us the great drama of redemption in Christ. Salvation in the present, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Salvation in the past, we proclaim the Lord's death. And salvation in the future, until he comes. In light of such salvation, the Apostle Paul warns us, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So before we partake of this supper... Let us examine ourselves this morning, recognizing both the gravity of our sin and the weight of Christ's glorious sacrifice. So we're going to respond together to the good news of the gospel, and there's going to be three ways that we respond together this morning. Uh, first is that you'll come up the center aisle, that you'll receive the elements of gluten-free bread, and we're going to take it by intinction, so you'll dip it in either the red wine or the white grape juice, and then you'll return to your seats around the outside. The second is, y'all, there was some big stuff like talked about this morning, right? As those curtains get pulled back, uh, there's gonna be some ways that we feel like that affects our lives or some ways that we see how distracted we are from Jesus. Uh, my encouragement would be just come back to the back and pray with somebody about that. Okay, let somebody else uh, help take you into the presence of God and do that heavy lifting uh, with you. And the third would be, man, it's, it's our joy week in and week out, but y'all like, I'm, I'm actually in the camp for sure that loves the, Christian, the Christmas music that Nick's talking about, all right? It is our joy, isn't it, to stand and sing uh, from the bottom of our hearts and the top of our lungs too. So let's pray together. God, we thank you that you meet us here in this place, that you can use um, all of scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And our hope this morning is that you would not just unveil the things of this world to us, not just show us behind that curtain so that we could see Jesus more clearly but that you would actually um, do some unveiling in our heart. That Holy Spirit, we invite you to do the grace of conviction of sin, that you would show us what's going on in our heart, so that we can not only see it, but feel sorrow for it. That we can feel shame for it even, that we can be empowered by your grace and through your spirit to turn from our sin and turn back to Jesus. We need you now just as much as ever. It's in your name we pray. Amen.